Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Digital Twin Fan Club podcast. We are back with part two of the interview with Michael Greaves that's being led by Simon Evans and Neil Thompson. And with me occasionally sticking my oar in, like I do. I have a theory and I wonder uh, what your thoughts are. So you talk about shadow IT. I always IT. love theories. Go ahead. So you talk about, talk about shadow IT, right? So I think, I think especially with engineering-based organizations where they're, you know, they're helping other people create new products or they create their own products, whoever involves any type of engineering from software through to making rockets. Um, is Digital Twin and its concept an invention of the engineering fraternity that has emerged as shadow IT? Or has it emerged from the information uh, technology practitioner space? So, so I think it's clearly originated out of the, uh, out of the operational space. So, so I don't okay. think, okay. If, if, you, if you go and look at all sort of the, the lead up to this, it doesn't come out of IT. It comes out of, of the people that were actually had, had the requirement. So, so my colleague at NASA, John Vickers, is the principal technologist for manufacturing uh, structures and additive manufacturing. So, so, I mean, he's been involved in, you know, how do you go build one of these things? They really don't see uh, an instance, haven't seen an instance where it, this was an IT idea that says, gee, hey, here's, here's kind of the, the, the thing we ought to be doing. It really comes out of the people that are doing it. There's a, there's a short paper that I did for Apriso Corporation that's now part of the SO Systems that basically it was, was, in fact, I think 2014, which was the, the digital twin in manufacturing, talking about uh, what I call factory replication, being able to, to replicate your factory in the virtual world. And that paper is cited all over the place in academic papers, which is really surprising because generally that doesn't happen. But it was a practitioner paper. I mean, it, it was not you know, here is this theory or here is this IT thing. It really was about, you know, how do we basically make factories more effective and efficient? And on that practitioner piece completely, it feels within the built environment space and some of the sectors that we, we most face at the moment, there's a lot of theory and kind of uh, uh, talk going on around what you could do with a digital twin. So people writing strategies, talking about the concepts, saying how it could be done. But not much of it seems to have translated yet into actually delivering or tangible twins that are adding value. And I was wondering if you had, from your experience, maybe one or two examples or just a main example that always comes to mind of when a twin has been implemented in practice for a particular use case and what that did and what that achieved. In my book, uh, the Virtually Perfect book, I talk about what Rolls-Royce did with their engines. I mean, they started, in essence, censoring those engines a while back and they have this, had this, uh, still do have the center in Derby, England, that basically, you know, looked like this was cool operation center and it had a weather map and it had the, the news thing. And, and you went in and said, wow, they're basically being able to, to handle prediction of their systems, uh, their, their engines. The reality of it is it was just basically done in some computer well far away from that because because it really was a correlation engine. You know, they were correlating sensor readings with fault creation and were able to basically, in essence, create my understanding sort of as the first digital twin aggregate 
by taking all these sensor readings and being able to predict engine failures of components uh, well in advance of, of those occurring. So I think there's a lot of those out there. The, the issue of it is, is that too often we focus on sort of the, the image, the, the geometry piece of that. And, and again, I drive it from use cases. So if you've got data that you're just basically doing correlations with, I'm good with that as a digital twin. I don't necessarily have to see a high fidelity image that basically captures people walking around in the building, if you will, to, to have, a, have an understanding that I'm creating value with this digital twin concept. So it's interesting you said about bringing data sets together just for correlation. And one of the things that has struck me recently is um, from Formula One, um, and I'm really sorry I'm forgetting the chap's name that I've spoken to, but uh, from McLaren that was saying about you know, the reality of how they calculate tyre degradation isn't some special sensor that, that measures it. Um, they, you know, they call them virtual sensors, and it's a series of things that come together, images, temperature, and their own mathematical model of how the rubber um, reacts under different conditions. And they, they, churn, they churn those things, and you it looks like a sensor output. It essentially gives you a reg score of your of your, of your tyres. Um, but, yeah, I guess it would be, be cool to expand on that sort of virtual sensing type of, 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 of twin. Is that something that you've, you've come across? Yeah, so, so, I'm, so I mean, you know, modeling is all about assumptions and, and, and sort of, you know, how do the physics work? And so, so, you know, there's sort of two kind of ways to do it is, is to basically um, take the data and adjust the data set in some sort of mathematical formulation to get it closer to actual and then hope that that's a, a good predictor. Um, and, and quite frankly, it's not a bad way to go in terms of being able to, to, uh, to, to basically sort of be able to do predictions. The best way is to get the physics right, but that's a, that's a complicated process. And, but every year we go on, we add better and better physics about how, how we operate, but generally that's sort of computational intensive, um, which is sort of why the, you know, the digital twin came about when it came about is when I predicted it, you know, the modeling and simulation was, you know, in the early 2000s, 2003, 2002, I think, um, is, you know, we didn't have as much computing capability as uh, then, well, clearly we don't because of Moore's law, but, but basically the modeling was a lot more simplistic. You know, it wasn't until 2015, 2016, when we had gone through, you know, four or five, uh, um, 18 months of Moore's law improvements that we really had the computing capability to, to do what we needed to do to have kind of more robust uh, digital twins. And we keep progressing that. So, so, you know, my hope is, is that, you know, computationally, we will basically keep getting, you know, more and more capability and being able to, to, to do faster um, loops through the, the, the computations we need to do and we'll basically be able to process more and more data. But, but that's sort of the key is, you know, can we basically handle all the data? If we're actually ever gonna to get to the fact that we can, you know, model each individual atom and, and predict what, it, what it's gonna do, we will then be able to have the physics do what it needs to do and we won't have to rely on sort of massaging data sets. But until we get to that point, we're gonna to have to balance between, you know, can I, can I apply some, um, some smoothing and surfacing things to, to basically the data sets I get to get better predictions, as opposed to 
you know, actually have the, the things that drive the physics understood in the models. So there's two sort of approaches to this, and I'm, and I'm not, I basically will tell you that knowing the physics is superior, but basically doing correlations ain't bad, you know? I mean, if I can get, if I can get my use case to, to, to match up to it, um, you know, I'm good with that. You know, I, I'd rather have causation, but I'll take correlation if, if basically that allows me to do things that I need to do. Now, most scientists, scientists will disagree with me on that. <laughs> I think that's the interesting thing, isn't it? That what we've seen is that with the, what a digital twin represents, not necessarily being new, you know, the bringing together of a physical and digital system, but it's really enhanced or that connective, or that, that closeness, that convergence is happening now at a greater pace because of connectivity, storage, compute, everything that's making that feedback cycle from a physical and digital world happen at a much faster pace. And what I thought was interesting in when you were talking about uh, the kind of the systems thinking or the subsystem optimization, it made me think that uh, often when people are talking about digital twins, they will seem to talk about it in the context of an asset or a system of some capacity. And of course, within that system, you have subsystems. So naturally, you have some type of system of system thinking going on. But the interesting space that we're hearing a lot more talk about now is when you kind of elevate that a level above and you start connecting systems across different disciplines or asset classes or even different sectors altogether together and where they integrate then you obviously have greater aggregated benefits so for example could you connect the whole electric distribution for the us with the water distribution and the infrastructure and what would that look like um so in the uk we've obviously got an agenda around that space uh, the, the national digital twin project that's underway and there are many similar elsewhere in the world as well I guess my question to yourself, uh, Michael, is kind of what's your views on that systems of systems connection when you're looking at connecting or creating an ecosystem of connected twins? And where might you see that going in the future? It's a natural progression. And so, for example, cities, you know, being able to, to model and simulate cities would basically be that kind of a sort of thing where I'm looking at a whole bunch of different independent quasi-independent systems that come together to basically produce um, a result which is you know city-like sort of thing so so I mean there, there's a couple pieces there that it's sort of tough to predict on and one is is that that always the problem is where the interfaces occur okay and so so and that that's really what drives system complexity is you know how much information has to move from one system to the, to the next and you know what are the feedback loops and 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 how do they, you know, how do they basically reinforce or, or, or cancel out each other is always sort of the issue. So when you basically have closed systems, you, you have a lot more control. And when you have open systems where you really don't have an under, understanding of that sort of thing. So, so I always kind of look at, at two, two aspects. One is systems that, that are geometrically uh, developed, like airplanes and, and turbines and things like that, is that is that there's this thing called emergent behavior, which is this idea that that um, there is some behavior that's going to pop out of this uh, this system that you had never seen before. And my contention of it is it is in in those types of systems where basically you have developed a system, you're not going to have emergent behavior. It's just behavior you didn't figure out you're going to have. You know, oops, 
You know, yes. that happened. Surprise. <laughs> yeah, surprise. And usually surprises are not good. I mean, I always say ignorance is bliss right up until it bites you. Uh, and so, um, yes. so, so, surprise. so you don't have emergent behaviors. Where you get emergent behaviors is where you have uh, randomization. How do you get randomization? Well, you can build it in. AI sort of scares the hell out of me in that once we start putting AI in and, and start to, to, to change it, you will have emergent behavior. But the biggest problem with emergent behavior are humans. If anybody tells me you're going to model the human, um, I'm going to tell you it ain't going to happen. I mean, people do some of the strangest things that you cannot predict. Uh, <laughs> and so, so you know, I mean, Alan Turing is one of my big heroes, uh, but but I think he sort of got it wrong in terms of his uh, Turing test and that, that it was basically, you know, will a computer um, be able to... Uh, to uh, um, simulate a human and I, my contention is it'll simulate everything but a human and so so um i think we'll be able to 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 uh, to to, mm. to simulate the, the physical world but the human aspect of it is i just don't have a high uh, uh confidence that we're going to do that now i know that i think it's a, the wingard test that basically you know you, you that, that some some computers can pass a turing test but but they're kind of stupid uh, tests. Um, but, I, but I think that, that the, the, this whole idea of, of the systems connections are the things that are going to be really tough to do. And especially if you throw randomization into it, um, I think that's a problem. And so one of the things that, 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 uh, that I've basically kind of been, been playing with is this idea of front-running simulations. And so, so as computing capability you know, you know, goes up, uh, um, exponentially the way it is, is instead of running these static simulations of stuff is that we will constantly run simulations using the new T zero of our exact time and be able to predict out, you know, a few seconds, few minutes, you know, hours, depending on what we're doing to basically be able to give us, you know, based on what the current thing is happening to right now, what's going to happen in the future. And if we can start to do that, we can basically predict a whole bunch of problems that ought not to occur because we're basically, um, instead of doing a static simulation from an arbitrary T0, we're always inputting the current information at our current point in time, which by the way, takes into human behavior because if somebody does something stupid, like leave a door open in the nuclear reactor, you're gonna basically factor that in and say, you know, we're gonna have a problem in the next 15 minutes. So. So um, this idea of front-running simulation, I think, is, is something that I think is really um, going to really make a digital twin very valuable in terms of the operation of systems in the future. So simply being able to predict out a few minutes could be the difference between life and death in a lot of situations. That's, that's really interesting because one of the things I was keen to, to ask is real-time versus the right time, to use um, Simon's phrase. And... I think um, from my perspective, you talk about T0, um, but I think there's, we have, we have sort of the absolute T0, uh, and then we have what I call sort of the actual T0, where um, you know, the, it requires some sort of effort to establish the current situation. So you know, the longer that takes to compute, the, 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 the further out your sort of actual T0 co compared to T0 
absolutely is 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 different uh i guess it's a really long way of having our previous transaction cost economics uh discussion but you know there's a there's a cost there's effort there's lag there's electronic lag there's the speed of light there's all that stuff so from your perspective um you know real time what does that mean does it, it do we need to push for real time is right time better you know what what's your thoughts on that just remember the speed of light is not just a good idea it's a law so uh <laughs> it's a good quote <laughs> so, um that's so, just, so, that should be like a t-shirt on a t-shirt yeah a <laughs> new mug with it <laughs> only for nerdy people though <laughs> um so so i mean it's an interesting question and again it goes back to to the use case so if i'm flying an airplane and there's a mountain ahead my t0 better be enough that i can basically you know move yeah, yeah. that airplane so so um so, so it all depends on, on, on what you're, you're trying to accomplish as opposed to that there, there's a right or wrong answer here with respect. Well, there's always a wrong answer if the plane goes into the, into the mountain. But, but the, the issue of it is, is that the T0 needs to be enough that I can take action to prevent what would inevitably occur if I didn't take action. And so, mm-hmm. so tell me how long that is, and I'll tell you what, what we actually need to do. So... Mm-hmm. So, I mean, in some cases, let's just take factory is, is, you know, you have a robot that basically, uh, um, you know, lags and, and, and you know that in three hours, you're going to have a bottleneck up at a different point. Well, I've got three hours. So, so, so I've got two hours and some amount of time to basically process that information to pre- prevent that from happening. In my airplane at a mountain example, I ain't got a lot of time. And, so it really sort of depends on, you know, the amount of time between I get notified and I can take action to prevent what was going to occur. That really is the gating factor for this from my perspective. That's really interesting. So um, another thing we're hearing often people talk about is the kind of the idea that a, a digital twin being a, a more like an approach and a methodology rather than a product, which we, we've talked about, but more that it's, it's a journey not just a destination. Um, kind of what I mean by that is that as technology evolves, even as it has done since 2015 and Moore's Law and all, um, notwithstanding that, organizations are going to be iteratively developing their twins with the latest technology to answer the latest use cases. So in some cases, I think organizations could be doing this you know, perpetually for the rest of their existence. Kind of what's your views on that take of journey versus destination and and what should organizations strive to achieve, um, noting that it should be use case driven? So, so, so I think you just answered your own question. I mean, <laughs> you basically said, you know, tell me today that Moore's Law is done and we're basically not going to make any more uh, um, uh, advances. And I'll say, okay, you know, it's been a destination. But as long as we, start, we keep increasing capability and knowledge, I just don't see that that this doesn't continue on and any any organization that basically says um that gee we're done um you know seller stock they're going to be out of business fairly quickly um (laughs) one of my my, one of the first uh uh, um, case studies i did was back on product lifecycle management and and again the digital twin is 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 really the foundational aspect for product lifecycle management they were doing their, their first implementation and his, his uh, executive committee says, so, um, you know, when are you going to be done? And he goes, I'm never going to be done. 
you know, this is the project from here on. And, and that's kind of the, the focus that we need to be looking at, you know, keep assessing, you know, are we getting value out of the use cases? We'll continue to get value out of the use cases. And there are other use cases that we can get value on. We need to keep, uh, we, we need to keep doing this. I mean, one of my things I'm working on right now is additive manufacturing, which is, so, so, so the whole idea, um, as my uh, colleague John Vicker said, you know, what we really like to do is to create the product virtually, test the product virtually, manufacture the product virtually, support the product virtually, and only when we get it all right do we want to go out and move around expensive atoms. And to that, I've added, you know, what we really like to do is print it, okay? So, so I have promised the Navy that they can print an aircraft carrier in 2075. And if they're not happy, they can come find me. Um, but, <laughs> so, so I'm pretty comfortable that, that I'm in – Pretty safe at that. Particular. They'll come find your digital twin, will they, Michael? <laughs> Hopefully, they paid up front. <laughs> um, but 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 one of the things that I'm I'm proposing right now, because additive manufacturing is a very different thing, is what I'm called digital twin certified. So so right now, if I basically test, uh, if I sample products or test products, my costs go up for everything that I do in terms of of increasing the inspection and certification level. But the cheapest way to do things is to have the information about it. And so if I could take, you know, and, and, and additive manufacturing is tougher because of the fact that everything is kind of a one-off as opposed to a, they take a roll of metal that, that, that has homogeneous capabilities. But if I could take the digital twin of what I made and test that digital twin to destruction, which is the best way of knowing whether something would actually work. It doesn't work real well when I'm doing physical stuff because you crash test every vehicle you put out, you're not gonna sell a whole lot of them, all right? And so, so if I, but if I could crash test the, the digital twin of it and have confidence that that really was representative of what the physical thing does, that's the cheapest way of doing things at all. So, mm -hmm. so in order to be able, so, so I guess my point is, is a digital twin is an enabler of other technologies that are coming along. So, so if we stop now and say, hey, you know, God, we've got the digital twin done, you know, let's go call it a day and head to the pub. Um, I think that we're going to miss a whole bunch of opportunities and other things. I mean, my other issue of if we have truly autonomous products, you don't have a digital twin of the autonomous product that's basically got AI in it that's making determination. Maybe you don't have a Skynet, but you basically have the recipe for catastrophic failures as those things cascade out of control. So, so if we're looking truly at autonomous uh, um, vehicles and things like that, and they have AI in them, we better have a digital twin of them in order to be able to provide oversight of those particular products. And so, so, so I'm a big believer of, of you know, this whole idea that says we're going to have autonomous things running around that basically are making their own decisions uh, independently and we have no visibility of them. We're, we're asking for some huge problems. And so, so I think the digital twin has to be uh, an integral part of anybody that's saying, gee, we're going to have uh, autonomous uh, mm -hmm. AI-driven uh, um, entities of any sort, you know, be it vehicles or machines or anything like that. Ultimately, really, everything we do in society and the economy in general will, will become a digital twin approach in the future, I'd imagine, as the physical digital worlds converge everything will be connected. And as you say, that 
the ability that the twin is that kind of that foundational piece that then enables all these other things to be built on top. Like you can't achieve any type of predictive analytics with a good level of fidelity unless you have that that somewhat representation of the physical. I would agree. I mean, I mean, I and I think that that the you know there's there's some theories um, that basically we're just information anyway, um, and we're just kidding ourselves about the fact that we are our physical representation. Um, in fact, an interesting book about black holes on that uh, by Larry Sussman. Uh, anyway, um, you know, the information is really what it's gonna allow us to, to drive these kind of decisions in the future. So the better we get at that, the better we're gonna get at managing the physical world from my estimation. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. And this is an incomplete thought, so it may sound completely random, so apologies in advance. But yeah, the, the concept of the two types of infinities, we've got the infinities of the integer numbers, and then we've got the infinity of their decimals. Do you see the same from a... It's quite interesting. This I haven't quite thought of it in the way of you know using a digital twin to be the governance of autonomous systems is an interesting concept. But I, I just... There's sort of the two realms of calculation that we need to get there's the i guess there's calculation of the single event and then the calculation of the permutations of that event you know i, I mean we've got things like quantum computing and what have you on the horizon i mean do, do you think we'll get to a point where it's um yeah because at this moment in time you know with machine learning and what have you it has to have um, a critical mass of training data to have any form of recognition do you think we'll reach a point where you won't have to have an ingestion of data to be able to simulate it. And if so, the digital twin would be less of a um, a digital model connected to sensors that's given you real-time data where it's just able to calculate the permutations of outcomes without the ingestion of training data. Do you think we'd ever reach that world? No. So, so, so I think you, you've, got, you've got MP hard problems that basically there's just not enough computational in the universe to basically be able to, to do all the permutations and combinations of that. I think in ter terms of, of some simple things, you probably, you, you probably could. But again, if you, if you have randomness, people or, or changing parameters, then I just don't think you've got the computational capability to basically map the entire solution space to say, you know, um, you know, so, the next thing you're going to do is X, Y, or Z because um, I know that that's it. So, so now we're moving into the term, you know, into deterministic, uh, you know, is it free will or, or determinism? And I'm still on the free will uh, side. I think just, I think there's just too much. Um, I think there's just too much variation in computational capability to basically be able to say, um, you know, I have a digital twin and I'm going to tell you what you're going to do um before you know that you're going to do it hmm. so uh, um, i just I, I just again if you believe in infinity okay then you know then it is not an innumerable it is not a numerable situation so um i mean it goes back to uh to the whole idea of can you prove something and if you're a fan of Karl popper you know he basically says you can't you know <laughs> you can only you can only disprove things and so so, um, I mean, I, I think we can get kind of clues. I mean, if you're looking at a sequence of numbers, um, you're probably not gonna jump from, you know, one number 
way out there by threes as opposed to by ones. But, but on the other hand, we don't know. You know, I mean, quant, quantum physics, you know, has thrown a whole bunch of, uh, of, of randomness into the, into the world that we don't see. But, but clearly, you know, the, the, the mathematics says it's out there. So, so I, just don't, I, I just don't see that, uh, that we will ever be able to, to have a static, if you will, digital twin that predicts uh, what's happening in the real world without basically feeding sensor information in on a continual basis. Did that answer your question or did we just veer off into uh, hyperspace on that one? Related to that, um, one of the things I find quite interesting from a sort of a history of engineering and what it's delivered over time is, you know, let's, let's think about the automobile. Uh, we've we've created an effective supply chain for providing, let's say, the social outcome of driving a car is individual freedom, and engineers have done a great job of making that as cheap as 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 possible. Where you know a good proportion of the pop- global population owns a car, but the environmental and social outcome of that, in terms of congestion on the roads, pollution. And what have you has has been catastrophic. I think. Um, now, do, would you? I mean, sorry, this is too broad. But would you think that the the use of a digital twin will be able to change how engineers can model the social outcomes of the things that they're building? Um, because I'm, I don't know. If, I know we can never go back in time and essentially ask ask Henry Ford. Oh, by the way, there's going to be some catastrophic. Um, social environmental impacts of the, the 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 production line and what you're creating. Do you think the digital twin can change how we can see the outcomes of the the products that we're creating? No. Good short answer to these questions. Do you think, do you think we won't? Okay. That's it. Next I, next I, question. <laughs> I, I think when you get into the social engineering things and and the predictions of catastrophe and all these other things, um, you know, I I am. Um, I'm a, I'm an optimist by nature, and I just don't necessarily see that uh, that uh, the the doom and gloom of technology. You know, I'm a big science fiction fan, and you always have these dystopian <laughs> predictions. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they never come true. I mean, and so so um, I, I basically think that that when you start to social engineer, I don't think that's a role for engineers. I mean, quite frankly, um, the, the market always basically sort of dictates where you're going to go and you need to follow that. And if you try to, to, to go your own route, generally you'll go bankrupt. So, um, so I think, I think that, that um, I don't necessarily think we can predict the future uh, and w- with any kind of, uh, of, of, uh, of fidelity in doing that. And I prefer not to do that. So, so I'm going to let engineers do what engineers do. And and, I, and the day they become social creatures, I think we got we got basically socially constructed airplanes that will fall out of the sky. So um, <laughs> that's not what I want. That's that's a great answer. Thank you. So for us to get to a state where we can have these, let's say, twins of multiple assets communicating, and the world becoming, let's say, uh, everything we do becoming a digital twin approach. There's obviously the question around standardization and what we do around creating common standards for communication between twins or parts like that. 
What's your general view on standardization and of, of approaches? Or is it more about building consensus rather than standardization? So, so, so I think in the world that we live in right now, standardization is doomed for failure because by the time you get a bunch of people to agree on a standard, you know, they're, they're in your rear view mirror. So, so the term I, I tend to use is harmonization, okay? We all got to play nicely in the sandbox and, and we need to figure that out in order to be able to, to do that. Uh, and I think that that kind of is, is what the best that we can hope for. And so I've been sitting, I sit, I've sat on some standards committees. I mean, my God, it's amazing that we ever get any standards out at all. And generally when they do, they are, let's say less than what you would have hoped for, you know, given the amount of time that you spent on it. And so, so I, I think that, that what you're going to see, and I think what we are seeing is this idea of harmonization and, and who drives that? Well, the, the users drive that sort of thing to say, look, I, I want to do X, Y, or Z. And the companies, the organizations that figure out how to do that, make money. And the ones that basically say, no, you need to hear my standards are basically defunct. And so, so, so I think that the, the harmonization piece uh, is, is not only the best we can hope for, I think it works fairly well. So, so um, I, uh, I'm, I'm always not welcome at the National Institute of Standards and Technology in, in the U.S. for that kind of perspective. But I quite frankly think that, that, that we're going to make a lot more advances by, by moving forward and figuring out how to, how to make these kind of connections than we are about waiting until we have a standard to basically mm -hmm. go do that. It's just not going to work. An expansion of that question is essentially the role of making this happen more broadly. So we're talking from the point of view of the built environment, but I think it's the same with other industrial sectors maybe is you know, how how much should a government be involved with uh, enabling that harmonization? You want to screw things up, let the government run it. All right. I mean, I think that 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 what they ought to be is sort of be on the on the outliers of making sure that nobody takes a necessary advantage of it, but asking the government to, 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 to perform that role, I think is never going to get you to where you want to be. So um, I'm, I'm, I'm a big believer that it's got to be sort of grass up, grassroots up rather than, than top down dictated. And so, mm -hmm. so how well did the Soviet Union do with uh, dictating the standards for their economic organization? That's I, I would like to say and challenge that, you know, how is ARPANET funded? How is NASA funded? How is funding is different? So, so, so. Um, in fact, in fact, I was involved with that uh, early on um, in the in the late '60s with basically uh, uh, ten character per second teletypes uh, connected to systems. They funded it. They didn't dictate what it needed to be. Mm. And so, so I think that that funding. You know, I think that funding and basically being able to, to sort of, of help economically with good ideas is a lot different than saying, here is the standard that we're dictating that you should follow. Okay. Yeah. It can be government funded, but industry or expert run such. So final question, I think, and then we'll have to wrap up. We, have, of course, represent the Digital Twin fan club, which uh, kind of are just a collection of people who a bit tongue-in-cheek, are fans of the, the digital twin as such, or the concept of digital twin. Um, 
What would be, I guess, the question to yourself, Michael, is what do you think of the idea of digital twins having a fan club as such? I, I, I think it is typically English. I mean, you have a great sense of humor about how, how to do things. So, um, so it, uh, it did catch me by surprise. I think it's a great idea. I mean, I, I think that, that uh, it sort of, uh, you know, it personalizes it and makes it a little more anthropomorphic than, than what you might have had with sort of this standard committee for digital twins. So, so I think a digital twin fan club, back to our sort of previous discussions about, you know, the, the roles of, of standards in government and things like that, um, I think it's, it's what will bubble up kind of, you know, what should we be doing that basically creates value as opposed to we have the standards committee for digital twins. So, so I, I, I guess I'm a fan of the digital fan club. So, so count me in as, a, as someone who thinks that I think this is a really good idea. You'll be the recipient of our first T-shirt. Yeah, honorary member for sure. <laughs> Absolutely. Oh, we're going to make him the honorary president. My bad. Oh, that's even oh. better. I didn't want to put it out there too early. All <laughs> oh, right. Okay. Yeah, I didn't say that. Um, great. We- I, I, I'm, I'm sniping a question. Um, I've just finished uh, a science fiction book. Um, got any recommendations, Michael? Uh, so, so I'm an anthology, anthology fan. I mean... Uh, um, I don't know if you're familiar with the, uh, the, the versions that were put out by DeZoy, who, who unfortunately died last year, but it's the best collection of science fiction that you'll ever find. And unfortunately, he put out 33 or 35 of them before he passed away last year. But, but you're never going to find a better collection of science fiction than, than it is in that series. And it's kind of timeless. So, so I can send you, the, I'll send you the link to it. But if you haven't, uh, if you haven't read those, um, you're sort of missing a treat. Okay, all right. I haven't, so I like it. Same here. I'll, I'll send the link. That's good. Yes, please. I'll post it on this podcast as well for others to, to listen and click. All right. Thanks, Thanks Michael. Thanks very much. Good luck, guys. Thanks. Cheers. 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 All righty. Thanks. Bye. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Digital Twin Fan Club podcast. And we had Michael Greaves this time. Well, that was exciting, wasn't it? Please come check us out online at digitaltwinfanclub.com. We're on LinkedIn. Just search for Digital Twin Fan Club. And we're the Digital Twin on Twitter.